We have the opportunity to see God revealed in his book again this morning as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26 this morning. Page 1,502. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh... The story I'm about to tell you is not my story, but it's a a true story. Uh, Someone I once knew, or I know, once moved to a new house in a new city, and with all the hustle and bustle involved with the move, uh, he failed to notice that he was not receiving his city water bills. Now, this man worked nights, and after um, a few months in his new home with his family, he came home on a Friday morning from work, and he sent his wife off to, to work and his children off to school, and he went to bed. When he woke up that afternoon to take a shower, uh, there was no water. So he went through the house, turning on and off the water, just to confirm that it wasn't just his shower that was the problem. So he goes out to the, the main city water uh, main there in his house, and it's locked. And it's locked because the city had turned off his water. So he gets in his car and he he drives down to the um, uh, city hall and he begins to unload on the first city worker that he sees. Just imagine this scene. Here this man is, incredibly angry. He doesn't know why he wasn't getting his water bill. It wasn't his fault for all he knows. And if he would have been awake when they came to his house to shut off his water, he would have paid them. He had plenty of money. Money was not the problem. But now it's three o'clock on a Friday, and this poor city worker has to tell this man that everyone has gone home, and there's no one to call to come and turn his water back on. So even though he's got plenty of money in the bank, he's got to face the entire weekend home with his family and no water to his house. Needless to say, he was very angry, he was not very polite, And he had very little patience for this city worker who was only doing her job. Eventually, he realizes there's nothing that he can do, and so he goes home. Now, given the situation, everyone in this room can probably understand this man's anger. 
In fact, uh, if we're honest, many of us would not have acted much better if it had been us in his shoes. Yet Jesus is going to teach us today that the anger inside this man's heart was not only sinful, it was murderous and worthy of judgment. Here's our outline for this morning. First, we're going to look at the definition of murder. Uh, The next point we're going to look at this morning is the distinction of fruit. And then finally, the determination of saints. So, what is the definition of murder? Uh, For the most part, we all know what murder is. Uh, Everyone Matthew is writing to knows what murder is. Uh, Everyone Jesus is talking to at the time knows what murder is. It is intentionally and maliciously ending the life of another human being. But Jesus is going to teach us that the definition of murder extends all the way to the seed of murder inside our hearts, which is anger. Now, before we get there, we have to start with the Ten Commandments, where God is very clear. He says, you shall not murder. But also, in the Law of Moses, God says there was a difference between accidentally killing someone and murdering someone. There was also a difference between killing someone in battle and murdering someone. In fact, God does command the Israelites to go and to conquer the Canaanites when uh, they go and they take over the Promised Land, which of course involved killing them. And then there's a difference between killing someone as a form of punishment. Some crimes in the Old Testament required the death penalty. And so what happened before Jesus came is that the religious leaders in Israel took all of this information plus the command not to murder, and what they did is they restricted the definition of murder to intentionally and maliciously taking the life of another person. And then they said, if you murdered someone, you would be liable to judgment, which meant that you would have to face the judges in Israel. And so Jesus comes along and he says, not only have the teachers of the law restricted the definition of murder, but they've also made the punishment too light. According to Jesus, not only is murder actually more than intentionally and maliciously taking someone's life, but the consequence for murder is also more than simply coming before the human judges in Israel. Jesus says in our passage, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Notice, Jesus doesn't say that you have heard that it was written in the law of Moses. He says, you have heard that it was said. And that's because Jesus is not saying here that there's anything wrong with what was written in the law of Moses. The problem is what has been said about the law of Moses. The problem is that those who have defined murder up until now have reduced God's definition of murder down to merely taking someone else's life. And they've reduced the punishment of murder down to merely being subject to the human judges in Israel. One commentator put it this way, he said, the real contrast here is the law according to Jesus versus the law according to the religious leaders. And so then Jesus gives them his interpretation of the law of Moses. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. 
And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So it's not just the person who intentionally and maliciously takes the life of another human being who is going to have to face judgment. The person who is even angry with a brother is guilty enough to come before the judges. Raka was a Jewish insult along the lines of calling somebody an idiot, and a fool was like calling someone a crook or a cheat. And the person who calls someone Raka is guilty enough to come before the council, which was the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Israel. And the person who calls someone a fool is in danger of the fires of hell, which even then was understood to be eternal and everlasting punishment. So for Jesus, the definition of murder extends all the way to the seed of murder, which begins with anger inside our hearts. And since no human court could ever judge the heart of another man, the implication is that it is God who we will have to answer to for what goes on inside, what goes on inside our hearts. The Apostle John puts it simply. He says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now the question that always comes up at this point is, well, what about righteous anger? Is all anger murder? Aren't there times where it's good and right to be angry? What, wasn't Jesus righteously angry with the religious leaders when he goes into the temple and he turns over all the tables? And the answer to that question is, well, yes, there, there is such a thing as righteous anger. But also, none of us are Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, warns that we must be slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. The Apostle Paul warns us, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And if we put those two together, the general principle is that righteous anger is the kind of anger that comes to us very slowly. It's a, it's a thoughtful kind of anger. It's a, it's a settled kind of anger. And that kind of anger, we can be angry without sinning. And then we shouldn't stay angry for very long because if we do, even our righteous anger will give the devil a foothold in our hearts. And I don't know about you, but that would exclude about 99.9% .9 of all of the anger I experience. When I become angry, I usually become angry right away. And I get more and more angry when someone breaks one of my laws than when someone breaks the law of God. I'm more worried about my commandments being broken. Thou shalt not inconvenience me. Thou shalt not question my authority. Thou shalt not demand of me more than I want to give. It sounds ridiculous. But if we traced the things that we became angry about back to a command of ours that's being broken, it would be this ridiculous. James tells us exactly why we become angry. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. See, we desire what we want, whether that's peace, comfort, recognition, praise, or just to be understood. We want something for ourselves, and we don't have it, so we fight and kill for it. And it's shockingly easy to feel hatred and contempt towards those who are in the way of us having the things that we want. And for most of us, that's the people that we love the most. If you're a parent of children, or if you've been a parent of children, it's likely that most of your sinful anger gets poured out on them. We may not call them idiots or fools, but we say things to them like, what were you thinking? that carry with it just as much force as if we'd called them an idiot or a fool. Most of the time, though, because we're sophisticated, we're a little more careful about it. When we think someone is an idiot or a fool, those words burn silently in our hearts toward our spouse or our teacher or our coworker. And Jesus wants us to know here, that is murder. And we are just as guilty before him as if we had really intentionally and maliciously taken their life. And because murder starts with the seed of anger inside our hearts, we have to know the distinction of fruit. So if the definition of murder extends all the way to the seed of anger inside my heart, the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, how do I know if that's me? How do I know if I am guilty before God of having that seed of anger inside my heart? Well, if we take the analogy of a seed a little bit farther, uh, the way to know if that's inside our heart is to look at our fruit. What, What fruit is expressing itself in our lives? The evidence of what is really inside our hearts grows up and out into all of the things that we say and do. Uh... Jesus, later in Matthew, will say this, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. If our hearts are full of anger, if we are seething with resentment or frustration, and if we believe we've gotten the short end of the stick, then we will have no patience with people. We will seek to punish them with our words or actions. And for some, this will be clamming up and giving others the silent treatment. And for others, it will be exploding in anger. It's just too easy to justify or excuse this kind of behavior. Here's another quote from that same commentary. He says, We treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly, because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. That is why Jesus invades our moral slumber by telling us how serious this is in the sight of God. But Jesus tells us what kind of fruit flows from the heart of someone who is alive in the kingdom of God. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. 
Therefore, Jesus says, given that definition of murder, given that murder extends all the way to the anger inside our hearts, since that is the case, the way you have been freed now to respond because you are alive inside the kingdom of God is you are now free to go and be reconciled to your brother. Later, Jesus will tell us to go to our brother or sister if we have something against them. But here he's teaching us to go to them when we realize that they have something against us. After my friend got home from the city hall, there was a city worker there turning back on his water. Apparently, the city worker that he spoke to at the city hall um, happened to figure out a way to take care of this man, regardless of the way that she was treated. And so then he spent the entire weekend having to sit there in that sense of, oh man, I can't believe I acted like that. He went to church on Sunday, and so first thing Monday morning, he goes down to the city hall and he pays his water bill and he reconciles with that city worker. Because that's what Christians do. That's the fruit. That's the fruit that comes out of a heart that is alive inside the kingdom of God. Notice, according to Jesus, the fruit of that heart is not that we never become sinfully angry. It's that we are willing to go to those we've sinned against and admit our fault and reconcile with them. And when we do that, we also help them from sinning in their anger against us. And actually, this is probably the more difficult thing to do. More difficult than restraining our anger is to go to someone and be humble to go to them and and to reconcile with them when everything in you wants to forget it and pretend it didn't happen. When everything in you wants to blame them or somebody else for why it happened. But Jesus is saying that the fruit that comes out of the heart that's that's being transformed by God is reconciliation and peacemaking. And not only that, but we don't treat religion as a way of getting out of it. It's so easy to come to church and to know that someone has something against us and then use our time at church as a way of feeling forgiven so that we don't have to go to our brother and sister and make things right. But Jesus says a heart who is alive inside the kingdom of heaven will not do that. We will not use religion as a way to feel forgiven to get out of our duty. Rather, we'll even leave our gift there before the altar and first go and be reconciled. This means if we're here this morning and we got our children out the door today by yelling at them, we must go to them and admit our fault to them and ask them to forgive us. Some of us have grudges and broken relationships that we know God is calling us to enter into and to seek reconciliation. And for most of us, the thing that's in the way is our pride. We want them to come to us first, or we tell ourselves that unless they admit their fault, that we can't possibly be reconciled with them. But Jesus simply says, if your brother or sister has something against you, not even worship is more important than reconciliation. 
Which takes us to our final point this morning, the determination of saints. Jesus goes on to tell us how important reconciliation is. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still on, while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. See, in Jesus' day, if you were in debt with someone that you couldn't pay, they could have you thrown into prison until you were able to pay the debt. And once you're in prison, that's where you are until everything is paid. Better to settle the debt on the way before you have to face the judge. And in the context of Jesus' teaching here, our adversary is the person who has something against us, and the judge is God. And we will have to face our judge because of our sinful anger. And Jesus is saying, don't wait. If, something, if someone has something against you and you have a debt with them, your willingness to settle that debt is evidence that God is at work inside your heart. And this is where we go right back to everything that we've been talking about so far in the Sermon on the Mount. We come to God poor in spirit with nothing to offer him but our sinfulness and our need. And in his mercy and grace, he forgives those who repent of their sins and believe the good news. And the blessings of the kingdom are that we mourn over our sin. We don't justify it. We don't explain it away. We don't act like it's no big deal. No, we mourn over it. We are meek and humble and we hunger and thirst to live a righteous life that pleases God. We are merciful, pure in heart, and we are peacemakers. The kind of person, we're the kind of person who will humble ourselves and go and be reconciled even when we feel like it's not our fault or we fear, we fear that the other person will have the upper hand now in our relationship. But kingdom citizens are determined to be holy because that's what and who we are. And we do so by always looking to Jesus, who never had to apologize for sinful anger and yet became the ultimate victim of all of our sinful anger. He was arrested and beaten and spit on and condemned at a sham trial before the highest court in Israel, and yet, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he didn't say a word. Then he was taken before Pilate. As the Roman governor in Judea, he was the highest authority in the land, and not even Pilate was willing to let this clearly innocent man go. And then Jesus went to the cross and experienced something much worse than the fires of hell. He was abandoned by God, and he bore the sins of the world. All the sinful anger of mankind fell on his shoulders. And yet he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the king who rules us. This is the king who died for us. To reconcile us with God. That we might be reconciled with God and reconciled with each other. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we confess that sinful anger is something that all of us know. This is, this is not a sin that 
has avoided any person in this room. And yet, Father, our desire is to be who you say we are. Our desire is to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters, knowing that we have been reconciled with you in Christ. So we pray, Father, if there's any of us in this room who needs to go and be reconciled, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, move us, soften our hearts. We thank you, though, that we know that you are our King and that we can always come to you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.